I'm Elizabeth Hicks, a junior fellow at Massey College. You're listening to the JCR, a Massey podcast, where people and ideas intersect. This is the third installment of the segment Curtain Call. I'm joined as usual by my fellow co-hosts, junior fellows Robbie Steele and Zahida Ramdala. This is a conversation about theater, our experiences and our expectations as theater goers and theater makers. In this episode, we grapple with the pros and cons of staging Shakespeare plays in 2023. What do we gain and what do we lose when we put our efforts into remounting these works? We go on to talk about adaptation and working contemporary ideas into classical texts. Later, we reflect on how making this podcast together has influenced our own playgoing experiences. Throughout the episode, we speak about the 2023 Stratford Festival's production of Richard II, directed by Gillian Kiley and adapted by Brad Fraser. Robbie will give you some background on the play in this episode, but for more information, you can visit Stratford's website. We'll tell you a little about ourselves and then launch into the discussion. Thank you for joining us. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the third installment of Curtain Call, which is part of the JCR, a Massey podcast. My name is Elizabeth Hicks, and I'm a junior fellow here at Massey College, and I'm also a law student and an actor and a playwright, and that's me. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Zahida, and I'm also a junior fellow here and an MA student in adult education, and I'm also a playwright. Hi everyone, I'm Robbie Steele. Um, I am also a junior fellow at Massey College and Donov Hall. And I'm also a PhD student in English literature and the collaborative program in book history and print culture. And I study the history of books, um, temporality and narrative, and queer theory. And the three of us are here today to talk about Richard II at Stratford and about Shakespeare in general, about adaptations of Shakespeare, and about our time together this whole past year since we met. Thanks for tuning in. So we went to see Richard II at Stratford. And um, if you don't know, uh, Richard II is the first in Shakespeare's Henriad, which is his sort of history plays about the Wars of the Roses. And um, Richard II is the first of them discussing the life of Richard II towards the end as he is having this political challenge from his cousin Henry Bolingbroke who will eventually um, usurp the throne. While you know Shakespeare is looking at this um, context of the late 14th century, uh, this production restages that in um, 19. Uh, 70, late 1970s, early 1980s New York in sort of this Studio 54 disco moment with um, lots of fun that is like super effervescent and decadent, but also is tinged with the emergence of the AIDS crisis. And so it's using that sort of plot line of this political struggle in, you know, medieval, late medieval England to discuss sort of these political exigent questions of queerness and illness in uh, late 20th century New York. Okay, let me ask you this question. Do you think that we should be producing and staging Shakespeare in 2023? Okay, so I have three thoughts about this. Um, The first is, I mean, it's a financial one. Like, it makes money. you know, audiences go to see Shakespeare. Um, it funds a lot of, um, 
you know, actors and crew in Canada, um, Canada especially, where this is sort of, the Stratford is, like, it's a large festival. Um, and that sort of, like, financial aspect, you know, uh, can keep a lot of companies afloat by doing, you know, Shakespeare as part of their revenue. That being said, we don't want to, like, overwhelm that space and take it away from other creators. But, you know, if it's keeping companies afloat, it's keeping companies afloat. Um, my other thought is that it can be helpful to have a sort of shared lexicon and a sort of central text that we're all relatively familiar with and that we can, you know, play with. Um, having these sort of keystone texts allows us to sort of have larger conversations about our own time by sort of adapting um, these elements within the play and playing with them and readjusting them and revisiting them um, to sort of see how well they fit in our own time and see if we can see what they what these sort of keystone texts can say about ourselves. But also um, having audiences have that familiarity um, in order to have these conversations sort of intelligently and cohesively. Um, and my third thought is that this production kind of does that really well. It is taking Richard II and transforming it um, by placing it in this sort of disco uh, New York. Um, and that is at once extremely fun. We have like a lot of fun in this d disco space, but we also um, have... It brings out new questions from the play and makes us examine the questions of the emerging AIDS crisis and other aspects that you know are not in the play uh, itself, but allow this, having this sort of keystone text allows us to map onto it these conversations that we want to be having now. I think that's such a great point, and I think it's a complicated question because it is such a keystone text, and all over the world, a lot of audiences connect with Shakespeare and have had to read him in the canon because he's such a huge part of, of the canon, not only in, in Western contexts, but all over the world through colonization. Um, even my father, he grew up in Uganda and in high school had read so much Shakespeare and to this day still quotes like random lines from it and how it's influenced apparently dictionaries. I think that's a whole field and how how many phrases and words were invented by Shakespeare. Um, it's just such a huge, you know, even people that don't know that they've connected with Shakespeare have because as a result of those phrases and just how prevalent he is um, in, in the everyday. And then on the other side of that, I think as often companies like Stratford or Bart on the Beach that produce Shakespeare have, are very large theater companies and um, have resources to do large plays with the lights, with the glow in the dark, blood, with really spectacular um, productions of things. And I think, uh, especially um, when you look at it from a from a writing side, there there's also plays that are large casts that playwrights don't write because. Um, they're, they feel like it won't get produced or, you know, that's often the advice in the industry, keep it small. Um, and there's plays that have just had one or two productions and aren't produced again that are very large cast. And so I think that in the end of the day, Shakespeare 
was a really good writer and he, he still stands as a great writer, but I just wonder about if festivals that are, are so well resourced, besides just doing adaptations of the classical greats, if they also um, are able to to do as Shakespeare did. He was referencing political events from his time and, and spoke to them and contemporary playwrights are also doing that and maybe splitting the stage at festivals like Stratford a bit more would help. Yeah, it's interesting. It's true that these plays that people recognize are going to bring out more audiences and people who fund theater are often expecting something uh, traditional. Like it's just kind of the reality uh, of a lot of places in Canada anyway. And then another side of it that you made me think of is there are a lot of amateur or community theater groups that choose to put on Shakespeare plays too because there are so many roles and because everybody's sort of familiar and so the audience might come out to see it, you know? So I think, you know, something that both of you said that I think too is there is a place for, for Shakespeare, but uh, it needs to be balanced with new work and other voices. And also like the works themselves should be given new life by bringing contemporary perspectives into the scripts that exist. So with that point, I think that that maybe is a good segue into the next thing that we said we were going to talk about. Adaptation of classical works, maybe more generally. I feel like, Robbie, maybe you had a point about that. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this a lot with this production, as I probably hinted at in my earlier uh, comments. But I am fascinated by the way this play is using Richard II, which is a play that is so heavily about this sort of political disorder in England and using that to talk about the way we approach or the way that the U.S. in the 1980s approached the AIDS crisis and those sort of paralleling those sort of that political disorder of the medieval political disorder with the sort of stigmatization of AIDS patients and HIV related illnesses in the 1980s was like a fascinating choice. I think that it could have gone so poorly <laughs> with the way that we talk about the illness in the play, often foregrounded through the language of gardening and being there being a weed in the garden. Richard is seen as this landlord of England, not as a gardener, because he's sort of taking on these sort of corrupt um, roles and taking on effectively the rents of England. That language of being a weed in the garden could have so easily mapped to being the sort of illness as sort of a metaphor for a larger um, disease in this production. Um, but the production veers away from that and talks about AIDS not as an illness, as a, as a metaphor, but an illness as an, as an illness. The reason I think this is interesting is because it really flips the sympathies for Richard II. Whereas many productions have Richard II as uh, uh, nuanced, but the villain of the piece. Um, and Bolingbroke is the sort of um, more righteous king who usurps him. Again, the rest of the Henriettes are going to be all about his complicated relationship to his usurping of the crown, but that is often how this production is staged. This production's use of AIDS and the treatment of queerness in the play 
flips the entire perspective of how we think about Richard II as being now a sort of stigmatized, not only for his queerness, but also for his potential illness. And I think that 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 conversation was a fascinating sort of reversal in how this play is adapting, or this production is adapting Richard II. It was also just really fun. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, like, when is the last time you had this much fun out of a Shakespeare play? Like, you know, they're fun, but they're not this fun usually. Yeah. Um, it feels fun. like you're part of a disco. Um, and that, you know, led to, um, I think, a lot of sympathy that we share for Richard II mm-hmm. in the play. Because we're sort of brought into this um, decadent but extremely fun world. Yeah, it was very much like life is a party <laughs> at the beginning. And in, like, I'm here with all my friends. We're having such a good time. Like that was so clear. And I was like wiggling in my seat. Like I was, <laughs> and like, so hats off to the lighting and the sound design too. Um, because yeah, it was just truly uh, a party. <laughs> And then it makes it all that much more heartbreaking later when it is not a party. I think it's also super interesting in the way that this play, um, the director really chose to foreground a historical source that we have for Richard II with this disco movement. So they used the Wilton Diptych, which is this painting of Richard surrounded by angels and paralleling himself with both divine but also political authority um, through the figure of the white stag, this sort of pure figure that represents his sort of like semi-divinity um, in the way that Richard conceived of himself historically. This is a, 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 a painting that he would carry around with himself on campaigns around England. That visual of Richard as sort of this white stag surrounded by angels, this production adopts and places it in... Um, this disco context um, with the angels functioning as this sort of symbol of his power. Um, There's angels sort of as a semi-chorus with no lines uh, surrounding him um, in different parts of the play. But they also really come to signify his sort of death and downfall at the end of the play, speaking to Richard II's sort of political excesses. And that was woven not only through um, the the sort of semi-chorus, but also through the costuming. We have like Richard as the white stag in this sort of like voluminous gowns with his sort of uh, stag sort of like not girdle, but sort of. We yeah. just have this. What do you call that? Like a crotch piece. I want to say a cod piece, but it's not a cod piece. <laughs> but it's kind of a cod piece. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, it's sort of this um, uh, extremely fascinating use of this historical text. This is so awesome to hear you speak about this because I, I feel like Zahida and I are looking at you and nodding and we're like, yeah, <laughs> this is so much history. <laughs> you know. And so this is kind of another uh, pro to uh, you know staging a Shakespeare play in 2023 that you can dig into it like this and say this is how it's traditionally done here's all of the real history behind the story that the play is telling like that's that's really interesting for uh, especially for people whose interests intersect at stage performance and history well and what I loved about this is that it's not using the history as history it's using history and adapting it for to to have this sort of very queer message. 
This is the JCR, a Massey podcast. I'm Elizabeth Hicks, in conversation with Robbie Steele and Zahida Ramdala. In the latter half of this podcast, we reflect on our time together as junior fellows at Massey and on how our relationship has influenced our theater-going and theater-making habits. On the way back, I remember Robbie was talking to us more about the context as well as he did on this podcast. And one of the other things as we kind of wrap up this Massey College year is um, reflecting on going to plays together and uh, how that's been different than how we usually go see plays before this podcast existed. Yeah, so it's been so awesome to have our little group. And I think this is something that is true in a lot of different cases, but you know, we're friends and we also do a lot of things together at Massey College in other contexts. But to have a reason to get together and actually talk about the things that we saw is one really great thing. And then to have the reason to actually get out and see the shows, because I think a lot of people want to go see theater, but you know, there's so much going on and now the fact that you can like turn on Netflix or like listen to a podcast, it's a lot easier than going driving to Stratford or even, you know, walking up to Tarragon. It's a real effort. So to have people to do it with has been really special. I mean, it just, it really is about <laughs> the friends you make along the way. But if I'm going to be more, you know, sort of critical analytical about it, I think it really, watching it with you two specifically, who have so much insight into how theatrical productions are made, how playwriting is, how plays are written, how acting happens. I have none of this context as someone who is, you know, predominantly a literary critic and theater goer, if I can, you know, put it that way. So having that context has really given me a new appreciation and a sort of a new critical eye when I go to productions. And I'm able to sort of see things that I never used to be able to see. And I really appreciate that. So thank you for both for that. (laughs) One of the reasons we went to go see Richard II in the first place is because we were in the JCR speaking with some other junior fellows about Shakespeare. I don't remember why it came up, but we were talking about our favorite Shakespeare plays and Robbie said that his favorite play was Richard II. And I said, oh, well, that's being staged at Stratford this summer. We should go. And then we actually followed through, which was so nice. And it was like fun to go make a day of it, of course. And I mean, I don't want to like, this is not an ad for Massey College, but it's kind (laughs) of the whole point, right? Like uh, you're together speaking about things that interest you and then to have the chance to go make it happen is awesome. Yeah, we were actually remembering today that the way that we met is kind of so cliche and messy. <laughs> a couple months ago, somebody was, you know, often at events you hear how much happens over meals, how much happens over meals. And I remember the day in maybe October or something where Liz was, we, we had just sat, Liz was getting up actually, I think, to put her stuff away and this plan kind of formed <laughs> somewhere in when... Yeah, in the triangle that was left at the dinner table with Robbie, Liz, and I. And um, it's definitely changed the way that I see plays as well. Usually when I was, first of all, just to in Toronto, there's so much to see. And that's been really amazing. Um, and then usually I think when I see plays afterwards, we've, we've really been nerds about talking about it. You know, usually I get away with like, oh, I liked it. Or what did you think? Did you? And then, you know, we talk about a couple themes maybe or a couple scenes but um 
yeah, I think it's uh, forced me to, to be more attentive and hearing the things that Robbie and Liz say also, even thinking, even when I'm writing, I'm like, what about the Robbie Steele in the audience that is going to be looking for this? What about, you know, the Liz Hicks that is looking at audiences and how they interact with plays? And yeah, that's been a really enriching part of the experience. Oh, it's also just made me much more appreciative about Toronto theatre. I mean, when I met you, I'd been living in Toronto for maybe a month, um, or when we made this plan, and um, I don't think I had a sense of what Toronto theatre was like. And we have seen a bevy Mm -hmm. of uh, plays in the last almost a year now. And I feel like it's given me so much of appreciation for what the city produces. Yeah, you reminded me of something that I was going to say, too, that I don't know if we've really said it on the podcast before, but the three of us are from such different places in the country, and we have very different backgrounds, too. And so, you know, like a Vancouver, Calgary, St. John's, we're here meeting in (laughs) Toronto, which is really a hub for theater in Canada. It's, It's interesting to me to get to hear your more West Coast <laughs> perspective on these things that we're seeing in in the city. I mean, Calgary and Vancouver are cities too, but you know. Um, Don't shortchange St. John's. <laughs> <laughs> St. John's is also a city. Um, but uh, yeah, there's more theater being produced in Toronto than there is in any other city in Canada. And so it's been, I feel fortunate to be here right now and also like coming out of covid and this dead zone for a number of years i think that theater makers are feeling anxious to do things that push the limits a little bit and so i think we got here at a good time we caught a lot of stuff that uh it was super interesting yeah, and I feel like I'm being a little bit vague, but I think we're going to record another couple of episodes that get more into the details of some of the other shows that we saw at uh, Tarragon and Crows and... Canadian Stage. Yeah, what a lineup. Well, thank you everyone for listening, if you're out there. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is uh, airing as part of the second season of the JCR, a Massey podcast, but we're recording it in July of 2023. So the next time you hear us, we might be recording on Zoom, maybe. But until then, thanks so much. Go see some plays out at Stratford or anywhere if you can. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thanks for being with us um, this season. been listening to the JCR, a Massey podcast. I'm Elizabeth Hicks, joined by Robbie Steele and Zahida Ramdala. The JCR is a production of the Junior Fellows at Massey College at the University of Toronto. Thanks so much for joining the discussion. <laughs>